Masters in Business is brought to you by PropperCloth, the leader in men's custom shirts. With proprietary smart size technology and top-rated customer service, ordering a custom shirt has never been easier. Visit PropperCloth.com to order your first custom shirt today. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have Derek Thompson. He is a writer for The Atlantic Magazine. I've been a fan of his work for a long time. I think he does an outstanding job of taking complex issues of economics and markets and making it really understandable for the layperson. His new book is called Hitmakers, The Science of Popularity and the Age of Distraction. And it's really a, a fascinating discussion about how we completely misunderstand what makes a hit and what doesn't make a hit. Our concept of things going viral is really wrong. Uh, most things don't go viral. Even the things we think that are going viral are really in some way being broadcast, being selected, being pushed. Uh, the organic viral hit is is as much a myth as anything else. Uh, I found the book to be quite fascinating. It, it, it is some ways a more rigorous version of tipping points. Uh, to some degrees, it's a Freakonomics-like type of book where there's actual science and actual studies and, and really interesting history that leads to an explanation of something that we think we understand, but in reality, we really don't. And, and that's what made both the book and our conversation so interesting. So with no further ado, my conversation with Derek Thompson. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Derek Thompson. He is the senior editor at The Atlantic Magazine and has appeared on Forbes' 30 Under 30 list. He is the author most recently of Hitmakers, The Science of Popularity in an Age of Distraction. The book, which I enjoyed a great deal, Thank has you. been described as picking up where the tipping point left off, uh, a sharply observed history of the mega hit. Derek Thompson, welcome to Bloomberg. It's great to be here. Thank you. So you you tap into a lot of my favorite subjects, everything from cognition to networks to why our beliefs mm -hmm. about many things are, are so wrong. So, so let's just jump right into this. Let's discuss familiarity. What is fluency and disfluency? Fluency and disfluency are these two lovely ideas that actually come from metacognitive psychology, which is a bit of a mouthful, but metacognitive, above thinking. These thinking about thinking. Thinking about thinking, feelings that we have about our thoughts. And it's weird and, and a bit hippy-dippy maybe to think that our thoughts have feelings, but imagine, for example, that you're traveling in a foreign country and you're looking at all of these signs and you don't know what they say and you really have to get to your hotel and you're very anxious about this. That is disfluency. That is anxiety about thinking, difficult thinking. But let's say you turn around in this busy street in this foreign country and you see a close friend from high school who looks completely at home in this street and you realize, aha, I can ask you directions. That is fluency. That is sudden ease of thinking. And I think that we 
confront products in the cultural landscape, whether they're songs, movies, television shows, along a spectrum of fluency to disfluency. Meaning things that we're familiar with, the things that are just too far out there, a little strange, and we're not comfortable with. Right. On the, uh, right. At the extreme on one end, hearing our favorite Beatles song for the 15th time, and at the extreme on the other end, hearing some weirdly syncopated Swedish music for the first time. And so in dealing with fluency and disfluency, what's interesting to me is that, yes, people do have a bias toward the fluent. They have a bias toward the familiar. We love things that are familiar. But we particularly like things that are familiar when they're sneakily familiar, or when that familiarity emerges from a state of disfluency. Think about a podcast. I think one of the things that people try to do on the best podcast, one of the things that you try to do consistently, is to take a subject area that's a little bit confusing and find a way to elucidate it for listeners so that they can say, aha, I suddenly understand it. And that switch from disfluency to fluency has a very specific term in psychology. It's called, in a rather lovely way, the aesthetic aha. And, and that is actually my next question. By the way, you, I cheat because I bring in folks like yourself and Philip Tetlock and mm -hmm. Scott Galloway and go down the list who are experts in a deep but narrow area. And the beauty of, of their work is they provide that fluency in an area you almost sort of kind of understand, you know there's something there, and the aesthetic aha shows up. So let's discuss what is the aesthetic aha. The aesthetic aha. So let's talk about it very clinically. Uh, this was a study that was done by a few psychologists about cubist paintings. Mm -hmm. And they would show a bunch of weird cubist paintings to participants, and they would say, I'm not sure I like this, I don't get this. And then in a second round, they would give them a little clue. So if the painting kind of looked like a fish, they would say Pisces, or they would say, did you know that Picasso loved fishing in the Mediterranean? And suddenly in the second round, people would like the paintings much more. They would gain a sudden appreciation for what the painting was. And this moment of suddenly understanding that which was previously confusing was called by this psychologist, Claudia Muth, the aesthetic aha. And so if you extend this to say the storytelling realm, you can imagine, for example, how every single great thriller Every episode of Law and Order, every story of Sherlock Holmes, every mystery is this beautiful dance between disfluency, what's going on, who's the killer, who's died, and fluency. Aha, I think I got it. I think I know who did it. I suddenly realized the answer. And in many ways, I think the best hit makers, the best cultural producers are those who are really gifted at engineering these moments of both anxiety and sudden understanding. Meaning that it is both accessible yet different enough to present something, hey, I haven't quite heard that, and yet it sounds somewhat familiar. Exactly. If we were here discussing, you know, what is GDP? What are the elements of GDP? A lot of your listeners, I think, don't need another, you know, ninth grade class in the various components of GDP. That is too familiar to offer any aesthetic aha. But if you're talking about, you know, what's going to be, you know, Tillerson's plan for the Middle East or what's going to be uh, Mnuchin's plan for, uh, you know, the Federal Reserve or interest rates or, or tax mm -hmm. policy questions that people think disfluently about, don't know the answer to, that's what yields an aesthetic aha, is providing an answer to those unknown questions. So we've been talking um, about content. There's a quote in the book that, that I love, which um, is your quote. It's not you writing about someone else, which is, content may be king, but distribution is the kingdom. Just discuss that. Content might be king, but distribution is the kingdom. Content is king is the cliche. 
It says that if you make something that's great, a great podcast, a great song, great movie, it is self-distributing. It will necessarily go viral. It has within it the qualities of a virus. It is typhus. It is pneumonia. It'll just spread automatically. And yet? And yet, what we see throughout the history of culture is that that's just so obviously not true. Some of the biggest hits in music and movie history depended overwhelmingly on distribution mechanisms to get out to the public. And in fact, sometimes they failed before they had this powerful distribution mechanism. Um, In the music industry, for example, they have song testing websites that will essentially test hundreds of songs in front of hundreds of people and ask them before these songs hit the radio, how much do you like this song? And what they'll say is that if the song passes a certain threshold, say an 80 between 0 and 100, that the song is a guaranteed hit. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Derek Thompson. He is senior editor at The Atlantic Magazine and author of Hitmakers, The Science of Popularity in an Age of Distraction. Let's talk about music because this is really a fascinating topic to me. Repetition is the god particle of music. Explain. There are many species of animals where biologists say they sing, and it always means that they repeat a certain sound at a common interval. If you take even a sliver of human speech, and you take even a little bit of it, and you start repeating it again, start repeating it again, start repeating it again, start repeating it again, suddenly the brain starts to hear that which was previously sort of cacophonous speech stream as music. You're no longer hearing the content, but you're hearing the melody and you're hearing the rhythm. Exactly. Yes, you're hearing the tones and you're hearing the rhythm. And so literally repetition is the thing that distinguishes the cacophony of the world from that which the brain recognizes as music. So why is familiarity such an important part of our liking music, film, everything else. There's two elements of this. There's uh, the biological element, and then we'll talk about the economic element. Biologically, why are we predisposed to that which is familiar? Um, The evolutionary psychology explanation would be that if you're a hunter-gatherer trawling the savanna of Africa, and you see a plant or an animal that you recognize, that's a really good sign that it hasn't killed you yet. So you should probably <laughs> trust it a little bit more than that plant or animal that you don't recognize and might kill you. Disfamiliar potentially equals danger. It equals danger, right. So there should be a sort of uh, alarm bell that goes off in your head that says, I don't trust this. And now I have to think a little bit about whether I should trust it. That so dis- is that the reason why you say to a, a, a young child, here, try this. You've never had it. No, I don't want to try it. Exactly. Is, is it literally a biological component to that? Yeah, yeah. That, that, that child has learned quite well from thousands and thousands of years of human evolution. Absolutely. Um, but on the economic side, I mean, familiarity is the backbone of the advertising business, right? Why do you want to expose people to Coca-Cola and Pepsi and, uh, and Bloomberg over and over and over again? You want them to trust it. You want to, them, you want to build in the familiarity that comes from multiple exposure. Um, on for music, it's unbelievably powerful. On top 40 radio, songs that are unfamiliar are considered tune-outs. In a somewhat paradoxical way, we tune in to top 40 radio to hear songs that we already know, but in an order that surprises us. And so with in, in music, in film, and even across the economic landscape, there is inv- there's a strong economic imperative to build in familiarity because with, famili- with familiarity comes like So let, let's talk about the... Spotify weekly playlist, which I've been getting for years and and I'm always feel like it's homework. I'm so far behind. (laughs) However, 
There's a fascinating story as to how that evolved. One of my favorite stories from the book. Um, Spotify's Discover Weekly uh, app, uh, it dumps 30 new songs into your computer, into your phone every single Monday. And when they first built this technology, they wanted all the songs to be new, all the artists to be new. Pure discovery, pure originality. But a bug in the algorithm accidentally let through some very familiar songs and some very familiar artists. They fixed the bug and they kept testing it internally. And what happened after they fixed the bug? Engagement with the app collapsed. It turned out that having a little bit of familiarity, a little bit of this app won't kill you, it won't bite you, made it much, much more popular. And so that's why I say in the book, if you're trying to sell something that is familiar, the key is to make it a little bit surprising, to make it a little bit, this is not something that you've experienced before. But the key to selling something that is surprising is to make it a little bit familiar. And that applies to some degree to the Pandora um, playlists, or actually it's not even a playlist, it's Pandora's collaborative filtering. If I like this artist and this song and this artist, well, I probably am like those. And, and that works very well for them, doesn't it? Yes, right. And you mentioned collaborative filtering. Collaborative filtering also essentially takes the tastes of the masses um, and uses the decisions that they've made to guide your next choice. So that, for example, if you're shopping on Amazon and somebody buys your book and then buys my book and then buys T Tyler Cowen's book, if lots of people make that sort of decision tree process, then the next time my friend goes and buys your book on Amazon and my book on Amazon, uh, Amazon will prompt them and say, do you want to buy Tyler Cowen? book because thousands of people that bought those first two books also bought the mm -hmm. Latin, the, the, the third one. So th this is how a lot of these algorithms work is they essentially say a lot of people after they listen to Beyonce and The Weeknd then listen to Drake. So if you're listening to Beyonce and you've listened to The Weeknd, we're going to suggest Drake. So let's, let's talk a little bit about um, why so many songs seem to sound so familiar. When I started reading that part of the book, I immediately thought of the Blues Traveler song, Hook, <laughs> which is loosely based, uh, theoretically, chord for chord, on Pachelbel's Canon in D. And then you start looking at that chord progression, the one, five, four, six, and it just shows up everywhere in music. And there's an ongoing list and a hilarious YouTube video of somebody playing all the variations on Pachelbel. And they're all well-known rock and roll songs, uh, right? Or, or or pop songs or reggae songs. This is if you're if you're listening at home and you are an arm's length away from uh, a piano, you can play a C chord followed by a G chord followed by an A minor followed by an F. Or you can look that up online and just mm -hmm. you know listen it to your, listen for it to yourself. Um, but yes, this is exactly right. You know, you the the number of songs that. A play off of this structure is just incredible. You have Bob Marley's No Woman, No Cry. You have Lady Gaga's Paparazzi. You have Journey, Don't Stop Believing. I mean, there are so- You too. And you too, right. incredible yeah, with or without of... you. And, and what's interesting about this is that I think the common thing that's said about these, these songs and this chord structure is that the songs are derivative, that they're all just doing the same old thing. But the reason I don't quite buy that is that no Woman, No Cry doesn't sound anything like Lady Gaga. And it doesn't sound anything like With or Without You or anything like, you know, John Denver. These are actually, I, I prefer to think of them as clever cartographers, understanding that they all have to plot a route home, but taking slightly different routes to the same destination. And if you buy the thesis of this book, which is that 
familiarity beats originality and distribution beats content, then it makes an enormous amount of sense that as a new artist, you would try to write music that is optimally new, that is slyly familiar, not only because people are predisposed to like that thing, but also because the most powerful distributors might be inclined to more to better distribute a song that is sneakily familiar and therefore more likely to be a hit. Why has Sweden become the capital of pop songwriting? Three things. First, uh, Sweden writes music in major chord melodies, which makes it really exportable. They often write their songs with uh, uh, English lyrics, which also makes them exportable. They have a massive uh, public education investment in music education at a young age, which is very helpful. And finally, they've had a couple sort of like Michael Jordan style hits. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Derek Thompson. He is the author of Hitmakers, Science of Popularity in the Age of Distraction. He has appeared on Forbes 30 Under 30 list. He is a senior editor at The Atlantic. Let's talk about TV movies and, and video images. How did ESPN become the most valuable cable channel in the world? ESPN in the early 2000s was really struggling with SportsCenter. Uh, they were covering bass fishing. They were covering all sorts of card games. And John Skipper, the president, comes in and he says, you know, I feel like we're turning into a Greek diner. We're serving 10,000 things in a mediocre way. We need to be more like a steakhouse. We need to do a few things really, really well. And he reorients SportsCenter in the mid-2000s around a handful of hero stories. Kobe Bryant, Tiger Woods, Derek Jeter. Let's just make sure to optimize the chance that every time a marginal ESPN viewer wants to click in, they'll expect to see a continuation of their hero's story. And after this, you see ESPN stock just absolutely soar. Uh, the value of the of the channel absolutely soar on the cable bundle. Obviously, they've had an enormous number of issues in the last few years, as you've seen cord cutting. But this is clearly how they established their dominance in the 2000s. And what's so interesting about this is that it's really similar to the way that Hollywood has thought about heroes as well. That audiences seem to just want to come back and back and back to see the same franchises, sequels, adaptations, and reboots of the same heroes. So in a way, you could say that ESPN took a page out of the Hollywood playbook to become a hit. So one of the data points in the book I found fascinating is since 2012, more people spent time interacting with digital devices than with television. And it seems the progression was... Radio was eclipsed by movies, was eclipsed by television, was eclipsed by laptops, was eclipsed by, eclipsed by phones. Is, is that more or less right? That is absolutely correct. But what's so fascinating is the degree to which these former technologies were eclipsed without being totally shut out. Uh, in a way, yes, the television state the television box replaced the radio set in the corner of tens of millions of families living rooms but in a way that made radio better it made radio mobile in the next few decades radio went from being an absolute rarity in cars to being a standard feature in cars so tv sets made radio mobile and I'm sure a lot of people are listening to us right now as they're walking around or as they're driving. Radio is considered a kind of mobile technology. And so people still listen to the radio while they watch TV, while they're on their laptops, while they're looking at going to a movie maybe later that weekend. The mountain of media seems to keep growing. The, the quote in the book I really liked was, television once freed moving images from the clutches of the cinema, Cineplex, 
The historical sequel is mobile technology is emancipating video from the living room. Yeah, I think sometimes people say, you know, TV is dead. TV is not dead. Uh, What's happened is that I think as millennials have cut the cord, so to speak, they've sort of unleashed this, like all of these little seedlings of television that are pollinating our little tiny plates of glass. So yes, traditional linear programming is clearly in structural decline for Americans under the age of 60. That is without debate. But Americans under the age of 60 are still spending hours and hours of their day watching video. Maybe it's on Facebook or Snapchat or YouTube or Hulu and Netflix, but they're still spending a lot of time consuming video entertainment. It's just that there's so much video entertainment that it's eclipsing sort of the the OG, the original linear programming content. The day we're recording this, is a, there was a Wall Street Journal article. YouTube is now up to a billion hours of video watched per day. Unbelievable. Astonishing number. Um, We keep coming back to repetition, and there's a couple of things I I wanted to go over with you, not just Joseph Campbell and George Lucas and that, but you referenced um, a movie, Dumb and Dumber. There are movies we've all seen a million times. For me, when my wife had the chicken pox, a decade ago, we watched Gross Point Blank on HBO over and over and over again. And the more we watched it, the more we liked it. It just became, every scene became familiar. I could probably say the same thing about Blade Runner. I've right. seen a million times. And then there are the films that have that repetition built into it. Groundhog Day or the Tom Cruise um, War Edge of Tomorrow. Yep. It, it's the same movie internally, only with slight variations. Is that actually a genre that plays to our desire for fam- for familiar things? In a weird way, those sort of movies, Groundhog Day, are microcosms of the experience that you have, I think, with a single piece of Fractals. cultural content. Right, it's, it is fractal. That's a perfect word for it. So, that, for example, in Groundhog Day, he is living the same day over and over again, but he's also learning from it, and he's noticing different things. And now he's mean to the homeless guy, and then he helps the homeless guy. And we have that relationship, I think, with movies and songs, too. The 15th time you've heard A Day in the Life by the Beatles is not like the first time you've heard it. You know how to pay attention to the shape of the song. You know when to sort of tune in and tune out. Um, Even with movies like Dumb and Dumber, which is not exactly Citizen Kane. I've probably seen it a hundred (laughs) times. Not exactly. Not exactly. But maybe. Who knows? You know, everyone has their own taste. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Derek Thompson. He is a senior editor at The Atlantic Magazine and author of the new book, Hitmakers. Let's talk a little bit about art and why some things go viral, quote-unquote, and why things don't. I want to talk about a both a patron of the arts and an artist himself that you describe in the book, Kaibot, who left a bequest of seven specific artists uh, from the impression, Impressionist period that weren't particularly highly regarded and... It was to the, um, remind me which museum uh, in Musée de Luxembourg. Musée de Luxembourg. Tell us, tell us what happened with those seven artists and, and how this affected future history. Yeah. So I came upon this story as I was having this thought. I was in the, uh, the National Gallery uh, in Washington, D.C., and having a thought that I think is relatively familiar, which is why is this painting so much more famous than this other painting, even though they seem to be of relatively similar quality? And there's this remarkable story with Gustave Caibat. He's one of the least famous French Impressionist painters today, but he was a collector. 
of his friend's uh, worst paintings, actually. He only collected or bought the paintings that wouldn't sell to anybody else. And when you say his friends, just a quick list. Monet, Pissarro, Degas, Sisley, Manet, Renoir, Cezanne. That's some crowd to run with. It's some crowd to run with now. I mean, if you his his walls are probably valued at several billion dollars Amazing. in sort of today's Christie sales. But at the time, it was relatively worthless. I mean, he literally was buying that which couldn't sell. So he dies in the early 1890s at the age of 41, and he his estate he bequeaths to the French government. The French government says, absolutely not. We're not going to hang these terrible paintings. But after a bit of haggling, they finally decide, yes, we'll hang a, a handful of these impressionist works in a French State Museum for the first time ever. It was this enormous scandal. Right. And as you said, who just happened to be the seven painters he collected? Manet, Monet, Degas, Cezanne, Renoir, Sisley, uh, and Pissarro. Still today, these seven core Impressionist painters. So what does this story mean? Well, my interpretation of it, and it's not just mine, it's several uh, psychologists as well, is that his bequest consecrated the Impressionist canon. Because the next generation of artists looked at these seven to say, all right, which Impressionists matter? And the next generation of art historians looked to this seven to say, which Impressionists matter? Even in the 1950s, John Rewald's very famous History of Impressionist Art talks about these seven Impressionist paintings exclusively as the canon. So it's this remarkable reminder of A, the power of familiarity, when we see a famous work of art, we're not just seeing the paint, we're also seeing its accumulated fame. And B, that canons can be kind of BS sometimes, right? That this canon, I'm not saying Monet is bad, but the canon was consecrated by a literal stroke. Distribution being the kingdom. Distribution is the kingdom, yeah. Absolutely. Not all that different from the Mona Lisa story until it was stolen. It was thought of as a minor work and it created a whole bunch of celebrity and all that attention became its distribution network. Yep. Uh, Mona Lisa now is literally the most valuable painting in the world, it, the most expensive insurance policy on any painting. But in the 19th century, it was worth, I think, one-sixth of several Raphael and Titian paintings that were hanging in the same museum. It was a minor work. It wasn't considered especially important. It was considered a lovely, a lovely work, but not certainly not the most famous painting in the world. It's then stolen by an Italian painter. Taken, who wants to bring it back home. Who wants to bring it back home, right? He takes it to Italy. It becomes this international manhunt for the Mona Lisa. And it's only then after it's recovered and it's become broadcast on newspaper covers all over the world uh, that it goes on a little international journey to visit all these different countries so that the patrons can come see the, <laughs> the stolen piece of work. So again, the Mona Lisa... I don't think I have to, well, just to remind uh, uh, listeners, looks the exact same today as it did in the 19th century when it was worth 16% of Titian and Raphael. I'm going to tell you it doesn't look the same because <laughs> the first time you see the Mona Lisa, you go, that's it, it's tiny. I th you're so <laughs> used to seeing the image, you assume true. it's a big portrait. I know. And you show up, I'm like, oh, that's how he stole it. He stuck in his jacket and walked <laughs> right, out of the exactly, museum. Right. It's a tiny little thing. Right, you can fit it in a little backpack, um, and which is why it's now behind you know, bulletproof <laughs> casing, is because that's it's easy to steal. But I, once again, um, the content is the same. What changed? Massive media distribution of A, the story of its stealing, and B, the painting itself. It goes on an international tour like it's the Rolling Stones after it's recovered and brought back to the Louvre. So why is it the most famous painting ever? Not because of the content, because of the distribution. Uh, quite amazing. L let me shift gears on you and talk about industrial design. What is Maya? 
Maya is Maya. how I pronounce it, but it might be Maya. Most advanced yet acceptable. M-A-Y-A. Most advanced yet acceptable. This was the grand theory of everything from Raymond Lowy, the father of industrial design. The, and that's a, you tell a wonderful story as to how he comes to oh, his, understand design and how he comes to think about New York as this grimy... Greasy place he looks at from the top of the an observation building. Deck, yep, right, and basically says, "No, no, we have to change all this." Exactly. Yeah, he he's a French orphan, comes over to the states in 1919, uh, struggles in art in the 1920s, and basically between the 1930s and 1960s, designs that which we now recognize as mid-American aesthetic, like everything. He everything. The cars, every- the trains, the tractors, the uh, the cold spot refrigerators, the pencil vacuum sharpness. cleaners, the pencil sharpener that looks like a like a little egg that mm-hmm. everyone listening I'm sure has seen a thousand times in bolted in your grade school bolted in grade school. Or- that is him uh, this guy is Steve Jobs for the 1950s if Steve Jobs was allowed to design for literally every single company in America. It's amazing we don't we, that he's not as famous as, as he is. But yes, his theory of everything was Maya. Uh, most advanced yet acceptable. He said that people like discovering new things, new songs and new consumer products and movies, but we only truly love them if they sneakily remind us of that which we are really familiar with. So he was this genius at understanding it, really being an anthropologist first, understanding how consumers lived in their kitchens and on their farms, and then designing something that was only so sneakily new that they would confront something clearly novel and immediately understand how to use it. He, he was doing consumer product research and, and market studies Really, before there was a science of that, he, I don't know if he we could say he created it, but he certainly took it to places that nobody else did. He he was a genius in in a way, and 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 his company were were, were total geniuses in a way that today I think we would revere to the nth. I think that if he were alive today, uh, he would be a Steve Jobs-style figure. He would have television shows named after him. Uh, He really was, in a way, if you take Mad Men, right, if you take Mm -hmm. a Don Draper character, a genius of human psychology, and you marry this with a Steve Jobs intellect and an instinct for aesthetics... That's Raymond Lowy. You know, I mean, Draper plus Jobs. He was just absolutely remarkable. And, and you describe three rules that we learn from his work, and I'll, I'll let me quickly go through them and let's talk about it. Audiences collectively know more than any individual creator. To sell something familiar, you must make it surprising, and people may not know what they want until they love it, which is very much a Steve Jobs-like Very much a Steve Jobs-like system. belief. Yeah, but he, he really was a populist. He believed that design began with consumers. And so if you want to design something that people love, the first challenge is to understand them. How do they live? And I think this applies to everything from you're designing a new chair figure out how people how people sit and what parts of existing chairs sort of don't fit their bodies to something like a mobile money app figure out you know how people send money where they meet to send money what their pain points are he really believed that the design began with anthropology and then the second lesson might be one of the most important uh, prescriptive lessons of the book to sell something surprising make it familiar to sell something familiar Make it surprising. So since you just did that inversion, let's talk a little bit about rhetorical inversion. I thought that was kind of fascinating. The language of anaphora and epistrophe and all that is really quite 
Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. There are so many examples in the book of this. Is it just the rhyme and the and the lure of the familiar that makes that sort of rhetoric so attractive, so soaring? Yeah, there is a psychological principle called the rhyme as reason effect. Rhyme as reason effect, which essentially says that people, rather dispiritingly perhaps, are more likely to trust an idea when it's phrased musically. And that doesn't just have to be a rhyme. You know, it, it's not just birds of a feather flock together. There's all sorts of very clever and subtle ways to turn language into music. Uh, JFK's in, uh, first inaugural used a ancient Greek rhetorical device called antimetaboli, which is way too difficult to spell or pronounce. So just think of it as <laughs> ABBA, A-B-B-A. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. It's not the size of the dog in the fight. It's the size of the fight in the dog. Human rights are women's rights, and women's rights are human rights. A, B, B, A. Ant metaboli. And it not, is rem- not a coincidence that ABBA... Uh, and not a coincidence that ABBA wrote a lot of hit songs. Right, so it's easy to remember because you think, if I want to make this idea a hit, just think, you know, uh, ABBA. We have been speaking with Derek Thompson. He is the author of Hitmakers, The Science of Popularity in an Age of Distraction. If you want to find Derek's works, you can go to The Atlantic Magazine or uh, Barnes & Noble or Amazon. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, at uh, Ritholtz. Check out my daily column on BloombergView.com. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Hey, guys, let me ask you a question. Do you have trouble finding dress shirts that fit? Well, thanks to Proper Cloth, ordering custom shirts has never been easier. At propercloth.com, you can literally order a high-quality, perfect-fitting custom shirt in less than five minutes. Create your custom size by answering just 10 simple questions. No need for measuring tape or trips to the tailor. Perfect fit is guaranteed. Remakes are completely free and expert staff are standing by to help. For premium quality, perfect fitting shirts, visit propercloth.com. Custom shirts made smarter. Welcome to the podcast. Derek, thank you so much for doing this. I was really looking forward to this. I'm like three quarters of the way through the book. I really have enjoyed it. I really like the way you take something. So first of all, the books we like the best are the ones that are about us in some way. Of course. So you see a lot of your own psychological foibles and, and cognitive errors, and you start to recognize some things. There are so many questions we didn't get to before I get to the our standard questions. I have some stuff I have to... Uh, that's not me. I have some stuff I have to go through with you because it, it's just, it's just, to me, is just... Uh, so fascinating. Most popular products in history, or some of the most popular products in history, were one bad break away from utter failure. Explain. One of my favorite stories in the book is Rock Around the Clock. Mm-hmm. Rock Around the Clock is one of the most famous songs of the 20th century, but it's best understood as just an unbelievable fluke. It comes out in 1954. It's a B-side, not even an A-side. It charts on Billboard for about one week, and then it's basically forgotten. The song did not succeed. It was essentially a middling flop. But one of the few thousand people that bought the record was a 10-year-old boy 
named Peter Ford. And Peter Ford's dad was the movie star Glenn Ford. And Glenn mm -hmm. Ford was in this movie Blackboard Jungle. And the director of Blackboard Jungle comes over to the Ford's house and says, to kick off this movie, I want a jump jive tune. What have you got? And Father Glenn Ford says, look, I just listen to Hawaiian folk music. It's not going <laughs> to work out for me. But my son, Petey, uh, he might have some records that you'd like. So young Peter Ford, this 10-year-old boy in fifth grade, hands the director of Blackboard Jungle a stack of vinyl records. And one of those vinyl records included Rock Around the Clock. The song ends up playing at the beginning of Blackboard Jungle, in the middle of Blackboard Jungle, and at the end of Blackboard Jungle in May of 1955. And it's only then, two weeks after the movie comes out, the song hits number one on Billboard and becomes the first rock and roll song to ever be a number one hit, and this becomes the second best-selling record of all time after Bing Crosby's White Christmas. So... Again, like on the one hand, the song sounded the exact same in 1954 right. when it was a flop and in 1955 when it was a hit. The difference was this bizarre, fluky, lucky moment of distribution in, in Blackboard Jungle. Um, but it suggests that it's really difficult to predict sort of before the fact whether a song is going to be a massive hit or a massive flop. Sometimes the same song can be both within the same 10-month period. And, and we all know songs that we know and love, and how come this album never took off? How come no one's discovered this band? It's not the quality of the music, it's the distribution. Right, above a certain threshold of quality, above a certain threshold of catchiness. What matters to become a hit is not more catchiness or more quality, but rather superior distribution. And Blackboard Jungle is Glenn Ford, Sydney is Sydney Portier in this? I think Sydney Portier is in this, yes. And um Anne Francis. I'm just trying to think of of who the main uh It was the stars 13th are. it was it was not one of the great hits of nineteen fifty five. It was the thirteenth biggest movie of the year. So I mean just imagine being a Nate Silver about this, trying to predict that a discarded and forgotten B-side from 1954 played over the credits of the 13th biggest movie of 1955 is going to be the biggest rock and roll song in music history. It's it's completely amazing and unpredictable. So you you talk about a, uh, a Yahoo research project in 2012 where they're looking at the spread of online messages on Twitter. More than 90% of the messages didn't diffuse at all, and 95% of the clicks came directly from the original source or one degree of separation. So, so what does that tell us? What does that mean? Are we still in a broadcast one-to-many sort of world? Yeah, I think that today when people say that went viral, what they really often mean is that got big really quickly and I'm not sure how. Uh, but there's two ways that information can spread online, broadly speaking. Uh, way number one is pure virality, pure one-to-one, one-to-two shares. So, so give us an example of that because we all know of things that we think are viral, but you're telling us some of these things really aren't fine. Sure. Let's say I publish an article on The Atlantic. Um, uh, it doesn't hit the Atlantic homepage. It doesn't hit any major uh, broadcast platform. But I share it with one friend on Facebook. He shares it with two of his friends. He shares it with a handful of his friends. And it grows over many, many, many generations of intimate shares. That's one way, right? That's how a virus spreads. That is true virality. But there's another way that information spreads online that's not a million one-to-one -one moments, but a handful of one-to-one -one million moments. So, for example, let's say an article that I write hits the front page of Drudge 
or hits the front page of Reddit uh, or is shared by Oprah on Facebook. There's nothing about that mechanism that is viral. Millions of people are going to see that article from the same source. So it's very similar to that which we are comfortable calling a broadcast, like on television when 20 million people are tuned in to the same program all at once. So the Super Bowl, the Oscars, things like that. Super Bowl, 150 million broadcast. people at once. Clearly broadcast. Let, let me challenge you on Reddit because Reddit has this built-in virality mechanism where things are upvoted or downvoted. So for something to make it to the front page of Reddit where it may subsequently be broadcast, it has to have some degree of... I don't want to say virility, but I guess virality works. Appeal, yes. Right, where, where it's getting upvoted and upvoted and upvoted, and that's almost a one-to-one -one or a one-to-a-few before it reaches the front page where it then becomes broadcast to everybody. And this is what's really interesting about the age that we're living through right now, which is that, you know, there was a period where technology was either social or broadcast. Telephones are clearly just social. That is a one-to-one -one conversation. Mm -hmm. um, television is purely broadcast. It is just one to tens of millions. But most of the technologies that we have today are an interesting combination of social and broadcast. Facebook, for example, allows family members to talk to each other while seeing articles from Time Magazine and Bloomberg. Uh, Reddit is a, really, is a really fascinating combination because articles are upvoted socially by individual users, but once they hit a large page like the reddit.com homepage, it suddenly is a broadcast. My contention is that if you that for every uh, piece of content that we think goes quote unquote viral online, it almost always needs at least one or hopefully a handful of broadcast moments. But because we sometimes don't see these broadcast moments in the information cascade, because, for example, um, your friend reads an article on reddit.com and then shares it with another one of your friends and then you see that friend's article on Facebook, you can't see that it was broadcast on reddit.com. And so I call it a dark broadcast. But my contention is that broadcast moments are still responsible for, for driving popularity so, on the internet. So let's talk about a couple of pop confections. Uh, you mentioned some of these in the book, Call Me Maybe or mm. All About the, That Bass. These things seemingly, especially to someone like me over 30, way over 30, have exploded out of nowhere and then they've just become inesca inescapable. How, how do hits like that, how are they manufactured? So Call Me Maybe is a really interesting example of a, a so-called viral hit. You could say on the one hand that Call Me Maybe's popularity was engendered online. Uh, which suggests that maybe there was a purely viral mechanism uh, to its to its popularity. But in fact, the song uh, was sort of hovering in like the mid-level tiers of Canadian pop track popularity when a uh, little-known star named Justin Bieber... Canadian star, right? Canadian star, indeed, found it, tweets it out, and makes a YouTube video of him and his girlfriend, Selena Gomez, dancing to it. That video goes absolutely wild, and it's only then, after he releases that video, that Call Me Maybe becomes a sensation That's we all the know. broadcast. So what's the broadcast? It is Justin Bieber, a celebrity, with the following of any traditional broadcaster. Tens Time Magazine, of of, right, right, yeah, exactly. USA Today, broadcasting this song to his millions and millions of followers, and it's only then that the song becomes a hit. So uh, you, you use the phrase, the audience of my audience. That is truly how things go viral, unless you're Justin Bieber or Taylor Swift or someone with tens of millions of Twitter followers. 
You tweeted out, and even though half of them are bots, it doesn't matter. You tweeted out, and that goes out to to millions of of people and and a equivalent number of algorithms. Right. Yeah. I, I right after the, my chapter on virality and broadcast, I say, okay, well, let's say that you're trying to build a hit product or a hit company, but you're starting from a really, really small base and you don't have access to the Justin Bieber's of the world. What do you do to be to make things that people want to talk about? And a way that I think about this is that when I write an article, for that article to go big, it can't just be appealing to my first audience, to my first level of readers, and for them to simply say, okay, cool, and then click out and never talk about it again. I need a handful of them to want to pass it along because they think that passing along that article will make them, my readers, look smart, uh, morally in touch with the world, um, surprisingly uh, sort of counterintuitive about what is true and not true about economics. So in a way, the psychology I have to employ is to think, I can't just be appealing to the, my audience. I have to make my audience think that they want to share it with their audience, the audience of my audience. And so I think that it's sort of, it, it, it provides, I think, a really nice frame to see, you know, how do, how do you create uh, articles or, you know, essays or, or podcasts that appeal to a, as broad a possible as a listenership and viewership, and that's to, to create something that your listeners feel like will, it will make them look good if they pass it along. So we we have a situation, and and I'm reminded of this from a quote from the book, uh, where it's a winner take all society to a large degree. Uh, another previous guest on the show, um, the top one percent of bands and solo artists now earn eighty percent of all the revenues of recorded music. That's an astonishing Pareto principle. That's yeah. just, it's not 80-20. It's Pareto on steroids. Right, yeah. it's 80 to 1. It, it, it's just, a, so what does this mean for the non-Justin Biebers who want to try and get something out there? Whether whether it's an article, whether it's a small film or a television show or a song, what does this mean? Is is this a doomed effort or do you need a million of these things in order to find that, that 1%? This is, this is an awesome question, and I think about this a lot, and there's lots of different answers that I provide in the book, but let me talk about one that I, that I think might be most interesting, um, which is this concept from sociology of, of cults. Um, what is a cult? Uh, a cult is a measured rebellion against a mainstream. So it is people thinking that they are special and the mainstream is wrong. And there's lots of interesting research that suggests that when people hear a song or read an article or experience a product that they think gets them specifically to the exclusion of the mainstream, mm -hmm. that they're more likely to share it with their close friends in order to sort of draw that tight circle of kinship and say, see, there's someone who gets us. So one way to employ the audience by audience principle, somewhat paradoxically, is that if you want to be really big, start by making something that's small and specific. Because that small, specific message or small, specific product is more likely to get your audience, your consumer base, to say, this, this thing gets me, and I'm going to share it with my close friends to show that it gets me. And so I talked to this uh, an, an Etsy designer who ended up being one of the most successful um, uh, Etsy sellers uh, in, in that company's history. He makes little pin back buttons. And one of the lessons that he gave me was, um, you know, 
of course, he he's you know as mainstream as an Etsy person can be right now. I think it's the top seller uh, on one of its um, platforms for several years. But he said, I don't want to make pinback buttons that express purely banal thoughts, purely generic thoughts. I want my pinback buttons to express something that's weird because in a weird way, it's the weird message that makes people want to spread it along, not the message that says, hey, I'm just like everybody else. The the market related quote to that that I've always loved is everybody wants to be a contrarian. Yeah, right. But if everybody's a contrarian, they're just part of the crowd. And so you go through this hall of mirrors where people want it to be different enough so they could look down on the crowd yet they become part of a crowd it's it's there's a i don't know if you uh saw the monty python movie the life according to brian yeah uh, life of brian yeah. life of brian life according to brian um life of brian i love the scene where he's speaking to the crowd you are all individuals and they chant back in response we are all individuals. It's yeah. that exact moment. Well, it is. The, I mean, this is one of the really interesting paradoxical things about human psychology, which is that in a weird way, we feel more like individuals sometimes when we belong to a group, mm -hmm. which doesn't make any sense, right? I feel more like an individual when I belong to a group, but this is precisely what cults are all about. It's all about individuals saying, society doesn't get me, but if I enter this different group of people, then I can be my true self. I can realize my true individuality, but only if I find the right group, right? And so I think in many ways, this is one of the things that, that you know, marketers and advertisers that think about culting in their own messages mm -hmm. try to do. Um, you think about one of the most famous culting advertisements of all time, Apple in 1984. Sure. It, you are defined by that which you are not. We're not the totalitarian uh, big With. blue IBM company, right? We are the people who throw, was it a hammer? A, yeah, it was a hammer at the screen right. we with are, the big brother like- we, uh, are we are rebels. This is a rebellion. And every cult is a rebellion against a mainstream. In many ways, I think identity is antagonistic. Identity is that which we are not. And so in many ways, I think that you see lots of advertising right now which is all about allowing consumers to define themselves by that which they aren't. That, that's really fascinating. I, I'm a huge um, uh, comedy nerd, and I love Mel Brooks' 2,000-year-old man, and there's a line in it that speaks exactly to what you're describing, and he says, he sings, the hell with everybody except Cave 73. <laughs> and that's that's the the cult of, of that it, and it's hilarious if you if you haven't if you're not familiar. I with have. It, that's a great movie. It, yeah. it, it's um if you listen to the. I didn't realize you were such a big fan of of historical comedy between Life um, of Brian. And well, it was. I'm not quite contemporary. But, well, <laughs> Life of Brian is contemporary with me, but all the Mel Brooks stuff, especially going back to the 2000 year old man, was uh, talk about viral hits. If you read the story, he he tells the story of how that went viral mm -hmm. and i don't remember if it was um when he sat down with seinfeld or when he sat down with um david steinberg but he tells the story of it, it was party shtick that him and carl reiner used to do yeah and it no one ever thought it and finally someone says you two have to record it uh, brooks was a genius improviser as was reiner and and reiner would take the role of the interviewer and they would just do this and people would fall out of out of their chairs. So finally, someone says to them, you got to record this. Might have been Cary Grant. Huh. You have to record this. And he, when it's recorded, he takes two out. He goes, listen, I need two albums. I'm leaving the country. And he goes to England 
And he comes back and he says, I have to tell you, the queen loved it. Yeah, and that's it's great. And if you listen to it, it's just really the most, some of the stuff is just beyond, beyond hilarious. So we're down to our last half hour. There are a couple of things I want to get to before we jump to our favorite questions. Let, let me let me just reference this quote of yours about books, which I found quite fascinating. A reader both performs the book, attends the performance, and attends the performance. She is conductor, orchestra, and audience. So explain that a little bit, because I think that is a fascinating take on books. It's interesting because we live in a world right now where with movies and virtual reality, there are all sorts of experiences that were essentially just, you were, were given them, right? Everyone agrees what a movie looks like. Everyone agrees and what the song sounds like. But books are really interesting because it's this weird arbitrage where I, the writer, have an idea, a mental image that I have to translate into letters and then you, the reader, read these letters and create your own movie. And sometimes it's the same movie, but it's rarely the exact same movie. Right. It's slightly different. You're imagining different pictures. You're making different connections to, to Mel Brooks. And so I think one thing that is still so special about books, even in an age of proliferating and ever more developed media technology, um, books are special because they're ours. They belong to us in a way that the movies don't because we are responsible for creating a movie from them. The serifs themselves, the print itself, cannot be revealing of anything. We have to interpret it. We have to synesthetize it into words and images and connections and our own ideas and our own self-help. Um, and so I, I still think that books are special because they are more individual. Uh, the individual has a larger role in internalizing it than they do for something like a movie or a song. That that's that's quite fascinating. Let, let's talk about film and the quote from the producer who said the film producer said you could look at twenty things in a success twenty five things in a successful genre, change one and you have something new and interesting. Change them all and you have parody. Right. That that's quite a fascinating meta view of of films yeah it's a, it's a fascinating meta view of films and it clicks right back into one of the first theses of the book which is that we love that which is familiar with a slight twist and you know you can think about this for all sorts of hits that you know what is star wars it is a western set in outer space it is in many ways an unbelievably conventional story an orphan goes on a supernatural quest to defeat a villain who is involved in his origin story and returns to the normal world as a hero. That's Lord of the Rings. That is Harry Potter to a T. It's the hero's journey. It's Joseph Campbell. But Joseph Campbell basically says all these stories are one and the same with, with interesting variation. Right. And what's so fascinating about Campbell's theory is that the individual storytellers aren't trying necessarily to copy each other. They're just trying to tell a good story. But there are certain elements of that, which is a, you know, capital G, good, capital S story that seem to be relatively universal. We need an element of relatability. We don't want to um, attach ourselves to a hero who's already invincible. The hero has to start off normal. Um, he has to go on a journey with that's pockmarked with all sorts of defeats. He There has to be, you know, defeat and recovery and defeat and recovery. And then finally, 
he has to accomplish something that is not only powerful and gives him uh, a glory, but that he learns from and it makes him a better person because it tells us that our own journeys are self-improvements as well. So as I'm reading this in the book, a name pops into my head because it's so counter to that. Hmm. And it's Kevin Spacey and three movies jump out in me. By the way, these are you could see this isn't anything I was doing deep research (laughs) on. It was just notes I scribbled in the margins. Usual Suspects, mm-hmm. L.A. Confidential, mm-hmm. and American Beauty. None of the real... Uh, could you think he's the main character in each, but those usual um, archetypes of, of um, narrative building to a climax, then the anti-climax and everybody learning their little lessons along the way, mm-hmm. they're not quite in those movies. I think it's a great point. I think that those movies aren't necessarily, I mean, they are famous. And certainly, uh, I think I'm, I think The Usual Suspects was my guess that that's the biggest box office box office performer of the three. Financial was was pretty big also. And, and American Beauty. It was, I mean, those they are all, all won awards. Those are all, all among my favorites. I think that, you know, the um, the award circuit movies mm-hmm. follow slightly different rules. And I asked when I was talking to Vincent Brusezzi and talking to the movie producer. Who did, what, Brusezzi is the person who came up with the algorithm for looking at what makes a script more popular or less popular. Exactly, exactly. So we're, so the first thing we're talking about, which is Heroes Journeys, I think apply most specifically to blockbusters, right? Mm-hmm. To movies that are not trying to be Best Picture nominees, but are just trying to maximize their audience. So I asked him, I said, okay, well, is there a formula is there a rule to best picture movies? What would that rule be? And he had an interesting answer. He said, look at best actor and best actress nominations every year and tie those to best picture. You almost always have a very clear relationship between the best leading actor nominations and the best picture nominations, which says to me, him talking to me, which says to me that the, what we consider to be quality movies are not heroes' journeys, mm-hmm. but complicated investigations of individuals into self. Into self, they essentially stages for uh, complex acting. And what you see, American Beauty, uh, both Kevin Spacey and oh god, Annette Bening. Annette Bening were both nominated for Oscars, and I, I forgot who the one she won. He didn't, he didn't, although he's won before. Yep. and I forgot the woman who played he the won teenage for... girl interest. Oh yeah, no, I, I who became like a hot television actress for a while. Yep. Um, uh, but you know, his, his performance in Usual Suspects and, um, is astonishing and LA Confidential is again for Guy Pearce and for uh, Russell Crowe, it's, it's ways for the characters to grow. So great movies, uh, quality movies, best picture nominee movies are, are disproportionately character studies. And so the formula is not, let's send this character on a hero's journey. No, no, no. That is too conventional for a character study. A character study is an investigation of an individual's realization of self in a way that doesn't necessarily follow a Campbell's Ark journey. And and the book is just out recently. Have you gotten any of the comic book nerds telling you how wrong you are about Superman? Uh, No, but maybe you can be the first to tell me. Superman wasn't born with superpowers. It's only the people from his planet in the light of the yellow sun of our solar system that gives him his power. And by the way, I am not a comic book Ah. nerd, but I hang out with enough comic book nerds that even I know that. So you will get some angry. I will emails. get some a- angry readers. I guess his <laughs> his 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 story in our universe, or at least More in our less. solar system, clearly begins with invincibility, which in a in a way makes him, uh, I think, a a an interesting exception to 
the rule, which is that most of our superheroes begin uh, without any element of invincibility. Begin well, as for sure, Spider-Man, Spider-Man begin, yeah. right, exactly. I mean, obviously there's, uh, you know, there's kryptonite, um, but I, I wonder whether that is one of the things that has made it more difficult for Superman to catch on uh, in, in this century, is that there are so many movies now that are made in the familiar hero's journey formula where the character always begins um, with obvious flaws that even right. the new Batman movies that came out and from, like, Iron Christopher Man, Nolan. You, you reference Iron Man in the book because the flaws are so they're manifest so <laughs> even after he achieves his quote unquote superpowers. Right. And this is true or, with Batman as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and even with Spider-Man, there's this question of, you know, it, the, Either the the media hates him and he's always trying to you know realize whether or not he wants to be Spider Man or be with Mary Jane that that the his heroism is always you know darkened in a way by the fact that he can never truly sort of you know transcend humanity and our problems. Really interesting, and I, I didn't mean to go into a comic uh, digression. <laughs> La- last question before we get to our our standard questions: fake news. Mm. How does fake news? go viral is it broadcast by something often it is or is it a because what what i've noticed and i don't want to throw rocks at fox news or or breitbart or other but what i've noticed is fox news is this giant broadcast entity some not quite credible not quite legitimate um fourth tier blog will write something outrageous we just saw this happen with the swedish defense expert Mm -hmm. talking about the uh, terrorist attacks, turns out there was no terrorist attack in Sweden. And this guy, Sweden, has already disavowed. We don't know who the hell this guy is. But some crazy wingnut blog references him. He gets picked up on Fox. And now suddenly there's this whole, and then the president sees it and starts talking about it. Right. Two things I would say about this. First, as you've already acknowledged, there are obvious broadcast mechanisms by which that which seems to be quote unquote viral fake news is not actually viral at all. It is broadcast by Breitbart or by Infowars or by Macedonian teenagers with uh, Russian propaganda backing. Uh, second, and a whole bunch of botnet computers. And a bunch of botnet, exactly. The second deeper point, though, is that familiarity, the bias toward familiarity is so powerful that in many ways, what readers have always wanted from the news is to learn that that which they had previously intuited is in fact correct and backed by massive evidence. Confirm my existing beliefs, please. Right. It's, it is a confirmation bias cascade. And what fake news is, uh, it's sometimes just propaganda and that mm-hmm. is pure broadcast. But lots of what is fake news, which by which actually just means news that turns out to not be true, which is something mm-hmm. we've been living with a lot longer than just six months. Right. We want to believe that the biases that we've just arrived at are correct. And we want to seek out places that will reliably tell us that our biases are correct because what was the first question of this entire segment? Fluency. We like ideas that are easy to think about. And there is nothing easier to think about than a beautiful essay that tells us that everything we think is true. Moreover, there's nothing more difficult to think about than an articulate essay that says that all these ideas we consider morally abhorrent are, in fact, moral. That's a really tough thing to consume. So naturally, attention markets like Facebook, which is just, you know, an attention clearinghouse, will gravitate toward fluency, even though that's not necessarily great for our civic body. So your book did two things for me that that I find interesting and and. Within now, I'll get a little fractal and a little meta, depending if I go 
look down or look up. First, one of the things within the book tells us why we like things that make us feel smart, knowledgeable, a member of a cult that gets to look with some disdain at, at the non-members. My, my career-long interest in behavioral economics basically is just a little bit of egotism saying, oh, look, I figured out that everybody's wetware is flawed. <laughs> Aren't I smart? And it turns out, no, you're just confirming your own um, issues. But the more interesting one, a previous guest uh, is Lawrence Juber. We were talking about off the air. And he's this guitar prodigy and well-known. In fact, before the Led Zeppelin Stairway to Heaven decision came out, he explained how both the Stairway to Heaven and the piece that it supposedly stole from are both based on this classic chord progression from the 1600s. And he plays the original, he plays Zeppelin, he plays the one that's supposedly stolen, and it's pretty clear they're both the derivative of the multi-century old one. But And I really like his, his classical music, and I like his original recordings, but he's done a couple of albums of, of Beatles covers, and you explain why I am so totally in love with his work. It's the Beatles songs you know and love, but presented in such a unique, no recording tricks. It's just him and an acoustic guitar with a, um, uh, I think it's Gad Mad is the tuning. It's, a, it's an open tuning approach. And it, your book explained why he has two Beatles albums. He has a Wings album. And I used to think I didn't like wings because it was sappy and <laughs> and then you find out oh these are beautiful songs when presented correctly and now coming next month he has uh, coming in march he has another beatles albums he's he's got about two dozen albums but your book helped me figure out why i am just completely entranced by his covers of beatles they're familiar enough that you immediately recognize the melody but they're so different and so well done you can't help but say ah that's a song i know really well but with the twist, and thank you for explaining that. Thank it's you. The last thing I would say is that, well, first, 90% of the time we're listening to music. We're listening to a song we've already heard, according to musicologist David sense. Huron. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, powerful bias for familiarity in song. But more broadly, I think, there is obviously a commercial economic interest in what I call neophilia making consumers love new things. The way that GDP grows, the way that profits are made is by getting people to buy new stuff. That mm -hmm. is the rule, get people to buy new stuff. But this macro uh, economic instinct toward neophilia is always cross-cut with consumers' actual preference with that which is familiar. We are very happy wearing the same clothes over and over. In fact, we did so for thousands of years until right. the 1300s. We are very happy naming our kids the same names over and over throughout history. In fact, first names only became a fashion in the 1800s. We're happy to listen to watch the same Netflix shows over and over, listen to the same songs over and over. In many ways, I think the cultural appetite for new products is an economic creation. It is something that had to be created after the industrial age in order to allow the factories to sell as much as they could make. You reference this with cars in particular, with fashion today, that if, because most clothes you buy, you could buy them and wear them forever. But if you have to go out and buy the new color this year or the new pattern, well, that's, that's quite good for the manufacturer. Right. In short, markets are neophilic, consumers are neophobic, 
and hits are that special place in the middle, just new enough, just surprising enough, and yet perfectly familiar. Most advanced yet acceptable. Maya. All right, so let's jump right into um, our favorite questions. So you've been at the Atlantic. What what were you doing before you were at the Atlantic? I was a journalism student at Northwestern North University. And you were a triple major, if I read your background correctly? I was a triple major. I should take that That's off crazy. public record. So it, it does not count. So first of all, every <laughs> journalism major is uh, invited to, if not uh, practically demanded, to major in something else. That was political science for me. And then I realized there was this special trick at Northwestern where if you double counted a lot of classes and wrote a 5,000-word paper, you could get a legal studies major. And uh -huh. I figured that in sort of the long tail possibility that I would sure. want to become a lawyer, I should do that. But I sit before you today having not taken a single law class since. I sit before you having gone to law school and ah. I'm so happy I don't practice, <laughs> as do the majority of uh, law school graduates. Um, let's talk about early mentors. Who, who were the people who helped guide your career along? Uh, I had some great teachers uh, in high school and in college. Uh, a lot of my mentors were actually theater directors. Uh, I was an actor before I was a journalist, and I think that acting is a very useful education in journalism and because it requires the individual to develop a kind of internal sense of authenticity and an external sense of entertainment. And so much of great journalism, I think, is that which is informative, is true, but also is informative truth expressed in entertaining ways. Storytelling. Storytelling. Yeah. Absolutely. Let, let's talk about authors before we get to books. Who... What authors, journalists, writers influenced your approach to writing? Uh, this is a, a great question, a perfect question, because you were, in fact, one of them. Uh, I don't I, believe a word you're saying. Well, I, I, I'll tell you this. When I started off writing in 2009, there were a handful of blogs that were absolute must for me to mm -hmm. develop an expertise in economics. Uh, Ezra Klein was one, Matt Iglesias, Ryan Avent, Felix Salmon, The Big Picture. Um, so there were a handful of these blogs that I absolutely needed to read every single week to stay on top of the, cra the financial crash and the recovery. And so you were a, a huge help there. How about someone else besides me? Oh, I, I think I named four others. All but right. yeah, R Ryan Avent, uh, Matt, Ezra, I still, several by others. the way... Uh, Occasionally, people will say stuff like that, and I still have not learned how to uh, how to accept how to a, accept a compliment. Yeah, it's just <laughs> like, come on, stop. Because I because my wife will tell you, my wife will tell you that I'm still the same idiot I was 20 years ago. But you know, no well, one... your your economic idiocy was absolutely illuminating for me in 2009, when we were all idiots. And so, to be the smartest man in the room I meant guess. merely to be I, the. the I say I am. One. I frequently say I am unburdened by a classical economics education, and that was a huge advantage. I am extremely versus, unburdened by that education. It, but sometimes that's an advantage when you're looking at things and you're not, you know, talk about hit makers in factories. Every Wall Street economist, 90% of them come from the same schools, the same training, training programs. So when something's a little outside the box, they're oblivious to it. And it took all the people who saw the crisis coming were non for the most part, non-economists, either right. yeah, you statisticians, mathematicians, some some unusual background. I would say this. I think that when I didn't know anything about economics, it was useful because if I if at 9 a.m. I had a question I needed the answer to, and I talked to a couple economists before 1 p.m., at 2 p.m., I could write the story 
remembering my ignorance at 8.30 in the morning. Right. And so in a way, I think I was able to explain some of these really complicated issues in simpler ways because I remembered what the first questions were of the ignorant person. I was so, so I had so recently departed from the land of ignorance. And you've done a really good job. A lot of the things that you've written in our um, Mutual Admiration Society, they're very, very... Are well articulated to somebody who may be a layperson but wants to understand a more complex or nuanced issue, and you've always done a really nice job with that, which Thank is you. probably why the book is so interesting and and does such a nice job explaining some really interesting concepts. Speaking of books, tell us about some of your favorite books. By the way, this is the question I get more than any other from readers: are Hey, what books do your your guests like? Yeah. Um, there's a handful of books about cognitive psychology that are just mainstays and uninteresting, like Thinking Fast and Slow, I thought was utterly fascinating. Uh, I get a lot of my insights about the world and particularly about how to write from novels. Um, really? Uh, there's a couple sort of hidden allusions to the corrections uh, throughout this book. Some of my favorite lines from the corrections sort of um, slightly modulated to, uh, to talk about um, new issues. There's a line from... From Franzen's uh, book, where he says, um, uh, uh, "Afternoons are a cavity in which infections breed," um, uh, or "lazy afternoons are a cavity in which infections breed." Um, when he's talking about the frustrations of an of an older uh, character, and I think I have a line where I I um, I uh, steal from him a bit while noting in the index, where I say boredom is a cavity in which creativity breeds. Uh, because I do find that sometimes it's those moments when you're bored, when you come up with that aha insight that answers the question you previously couldn't when you were at work. Um, so that's a that's a, a great book that I love. Um, I love the work of Bill Bryson, uh, A Short History of Nearly Everything, A oh, Walk sure. in the Woods, At Home, One Summer. He is a brilliant, popular historian and a genius at using topic A to discuss topics B through Z. He's wonderful at sort of zooming in on a topic and then broadening out. And I love writing that understands that every every question has historical context. Here's a question, the, a new question. You'll be the first the guinea pig for this one. Mm -hmm. um, tell us about failure. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from it. I think every article that I write is a, a failure, large or small. Well, and well, now that's a little bit of an exaggeration, isn't no, it? No, it, it, but, but of course it is. Every, everything that I've written, this book, the last column that I wrote, I'll look back on it after two weeks, back on it after a month, and I'll think, I miss this, I miss this. And I think that one of the more important things for writers to do is to maintain this awareness that everything that they write, everything they will ever do is a failure in some way. And it, it, it's dispiriting when I see some, uh, some older journalists, who I, I will not name and certainly don't sit in the room, <laughs> where... I, I'll see that they've, they've, they've attained a level of fame at which they no longer need that feedback loop. They no longer feel like they have to read the comments or read the, the mean tweets. They'll just say, I'm above it. And to, when you lose that feedback loop and you lose the, the expected rush of criticism, you lose touch with the thing that journalism is supposed to be about, which is a journey out of wrongness. Not necessarily to truth, but always out of wrongness. And, uh, a journey out of wrongness. Yeah, and, and and that's you know this book is a journey out of wrongness. There there are uh, dozens of things I could tell you right now that I wish I'd put in it, but um, you know that's why uh, we have an opportunity to write new articles, do new podcasts, write new books. You describe that lack of feedback loop as you were just 
putting words to that, my mental image was, oh, he's describing former journalists who become TV pundits. Ah, uh, am I? To Indeed some I degree. <laughs> some degree. <laughs> yes, that's, I am. I don't know if you were referencing anybody specifically, but I immediately thought of, well, this guy is basically hasn't done anything new for 20 years, and, and that's why they're so out of touch, because their frame of reference is decades removed from what's happening today. If, if that was your uh, implication, then I accurately communicated my thought. <laughs> <laughs> so I know I only have you for another uh, eight minutes or so. Let, let's jump to our, our last uh, three questions, and, and these are my favorite questions. Another, yet another question, which was reader uh, or listener-derived, what do you do to keep mentally and or physically fit? What do you do to relax or for enjoyment outside of work? Uh, so let's start with uh, physically fit. Um, I hate working out. I Working out to me is like brushing my teeth. Uh, I don't like the process, but I hate having not done it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I have uh, a very uh, nice physical. My only splurge in life is that I have a physical trainer um, and I pay him to kick my butt. Because if I didn't pay him to kick my butt, you I wouldn't would. go to the gym and I would just right. feel sad about myself. I am a huge proponent of procrastination mm-hmm. and um, mindless, pointless uh, relaxation. I will take some Saturday afternoons and I will just lie down on a couch with a coffee and a bagel and watch 10 hours of Law and & Order. Really? And I, I think of it- You it, don't strike me as that sort of- Oh, it's Because this so, book looks like it was written by someone- who reads deeply and, and widely. I love reading deeply. I love reading widely. And I like reading deeply and widely so that I can reward myself with 10 hours of law and order on the couch. Okay. Uh, I I think that, you know, everyone, let, let's put it this way. Meditation is a hot concept right now. This uh-huh. idea of, you know, reaching a, a sort of a personal nirvana or allowing a, 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 a quietude to descend upon oneself. Um, my meditation is law and order SVU. That sounds sick. Uh, you know exactly what is happening on Loader SVU. Oh, that's funny. But there's something just so beautifully predictable and satisfying about every episode. A problem, a solution. A problem, a solution. And tidy, here I am. Neat. It's so tidy and so neat, and it allows for a kind of um, uh, a mental spring cleaning every Saturday. That, yeah. That's great. I'm gonna I'm gonna share something odd, television-wise, with you. About five years ago, we're watching some law and order, and there's the scene where they're doing the autopsy, explaining what happened. And I, I decide I don't need to see yet another human body. And, and by the way, I love these cartoon war movies mm-hmm. and I love these superhero movies, but it's cartoonish violence. And the problem with CSI and lawyer, it's real and it's visceral. And I just decided to stop yeah. every last one of those. And so when I see somebody get killed or blown up, it's purely cartoonish. It's not real. because. And then when you see a movie like um, uh, Saving Pri- Private Ryan, the impact is is so much greater than... Because you do it's get... True. I'm a little bit desensitized. Yeah, right? that's, yeah that's I watch the... so much, so much uh, CSI that I'm like, well, you know, like, of course, like Saving Private Ryan's opening scene is absolutely you know, heart-wrenching. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it, there is a lot of ghoulish stuff on broadcast television. Tons. Uh, yeah, absolutely tons. Um, let's talk about advice. So you're not that far removed from college and I kind of would say you're still a millennial, right? I am. Yep. So what advice do you give to a recent college grad or a college student who comes up to you and says, I'm interested in journalism, becoming an author, writing books. What do you say to a person like that? The, this is a, a lesson, uh, a 
piece of advice that comes out of that chapter, The Audience of My Audience, which is that there's a paradox to scale, I think. Um, people who want to be big sometimes think I have to immediately reach the largest possible audience. But in a weird way, um, the best way to produce things that take off is to produce small things, mm -hmm. uh, to become a small expert, uh, to become the you know the best person on the internet at understanding the application of Medicaid uh, to on minority children or something mm -hmm. like that. And the reason I think this is true is I call it's like my Tokyo example. If you go to Tokyo, you'll see there are all sorts of really really strange shops. There'll be like a shop that's like only 1970s vinyl and like 1980s whiskey or something. And that doesn't make any sense if it's a shop in like a Des Moines suburb, right? It's a Des Moines suburb, you, to exist, you have to be subway. You have to hit the mass market right. immediately. But in Tokyo, where there's 30, 40 million people within um, uh, a train ride of a the half city. An hour at most, right? Right. Then you, your market is 40 million. And within that 40 million, sure, there's a couple thousand people who love 1970s music and 1980 whiskey. The internet is Tokyo. The internet allows you to be niche at scale. And ironically, the best niche way- Niche at scale. Niche at scale. Uh, and this is a concept in, in the last chapter of the yep. book. Um, and uh, niche at scale, I think, is something that young people should aspire to. And our final question, what is it that you know about journalism today that you wish you knew when you just got out of school? Um, I wish, coming out of school, you know, I was in, I was a political science major and I, I do wish that I had taken more economic classes, number one, but also really history classes that I've had to catch up on my history education since I graduated from school. Uh, I think that understanding academia, understanding research papers, that isn't the most important thing, I think, of being a good journalist. I think the most important thing is understanding where we've come from. Uh, I wish that I'd taken more history in college and I uh, am still in the process of catching up. We have been speaking with Derek Thompson. He is the author of Hitmakers, The Science of Popularity in an Age of Distraction. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes. You can see any of the other 142 or so such previous conversations. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank our crack staff who helps us put together this podcast each week. Medina Parwana is my recording engineer. Taylor Riggs is my booker producer. Mike Batnick, our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Masters in Business is brought to you by Proper Cloth, the leader in men's custom shirts. With proprietary smart size technology and top-rated customer service, ordering a custom shirt has never been easier. Visit propercloth.com to order your first custom shirt today.